All right, this morning we'll go back to our, it's going to be a, who knows how many years it's going to take us to get through it, our discussion on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Let's see what you, um, we won't review too much, but just to make sure we're all on the same page here, let me bring up my actual notes on law and gospel. All right, because we were going to do something else. All right, um, first of all, let's remind ourselves of this. Why is the distinction, proper distinction between law and gospel, why is it so essential or why is it so important for Christians to understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, considering that if we go through church history, remember we go back to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, they have two chapters dealing with the law and gospel, and that continued until what year? Does anybody remember the timeline? Talked about it Wednesday night. All the confessions, Baptist confessions, had a chapter. Oh, that, that's the second London Baptist. It has the distinction. That continues on. 1896. Right, there, there's a split between Southern and Northern Baptist, right? The Southern Baptists completely wipe it out, right? And there's no longer a proper distinction between law and gospel, and it's obliterated, and not only within the Baptist world, but within the evangelical world. But the only people who still discuss it too much are Lutherans and Reformed. No, Catholics definitely won't. Yeah, Catholics definitely won't. Okay, they, they were like, no, they're, they're, that, that distinction sh- shouldn't exist. Okay, but uh, many within the Reformed world still do. Now, sometimes in the Reformed world, because you kind of have a, remember the Reformed world takes on kind of an interesting dynamic, right? You have Reformed, and then you have Reformed who are Reformed only in soteriology, like, that's the only part of their theology that's Reformed. And if they're only Reformed in their soteriology, you think there would be a proper distinction between law and gospel. But typically, for many that are just Reformed in their soteriology, that only involves what doctrine? Election. Just believing in the doctrine of election. But they may obliterate everything else. So you can have, say, someone like MacArthur, right, who is Reformed in his soteriology, believing in the doctrine of election, but would obliterate the distinction between law and gospel because of his lordship salvation's view. So there you have someone who would be Reformed and be uh, well-respected in the Reformed world, but then would not really be Reformed in a distinction between law and gospel. So you see how convoluted it can become and how confused it can be? So that's why, and so because of that obliteration, why is it important? Well, once you begin to destroy law and gospel, what typically happens? When the uh, distinction between law and gospel gets obliterated, what happens? Gospel is thrown out. What always remains? Law. And why does law always remain? Our law is written in our hearts, so everyone's already law-based in their thinking, right? You can take someone who's not even associated with Christianity. They're very law-based. This is right. This is wrong. I can't believe that person did this. Do you know they did that? Why did they do this? And they have a million judgments and a million condemnations, even though they condemn Christianity for being judgmental. Everyone is judgmental because the law is written where? In our hearts. It's, It's already built into us to be that way. So within Christianity, the reason the distinction is so important is because we don't want to destroy the gospel at the cost or the expense of the law. But because some cases, that's what happens. We basically sacrifice the gospel for the sake of the law. And we, we, can't, we can't do that. So, and once you do that, then, well, just the doctrine of justification, I will even argue the doctrine, doctrine of sanctification becomes majorly messed up and confused, all right? And what did Luther say about the significance of law and gospel? All right, simply put, the person who can properly distinguish between law and gospel, that should be the person who gets, in a sense, set at the head of the table as, t- as far as teachers are concerned. Someone who cannot make that proper distinction, Luther would say shouldn't even be in the pulpit, should not be even teaching the Bible, holding a Bible, shouldn't have anything to do with the Bible, because they're going to obliterate what doctrine? Gospel. And what would Luther obviously have been concerned about? Obviously, the gospel, because he was fighting with Roman Catholicism. That was the whole issue, right? Roman Catholicism, had obli- he felt obliterated that concept, and he wanted to reestablish it, because what did he find out about the law? 
What did Luther know about the law? It condemned him, condemned him, condemned him. That's why Luther spent most of his life where? And the confessional, confessing his sins, and as soon as he would leave the confession, what would he do? Immediately think of something he forgot to confess and go back, and he realized that he was condemned, 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 until what magical moment when he learned what? The just will live by faith. Remember why he was studying the book of Romans? Exactly. Okay. So that's, and then he described it as being like born again. All of a sudden he realized, wait a minute. My faith is what brings righteousness. And what kind of righteousness? How did Luther define the righteousness? Well, he used a different word. It starts with an A. Y'all's oh, church history is so bad. Alien righteousness. Alien righteousness. And the alien righteousness is a foreign righteousness. Okay? So, all right. So, well, I... It, so, I mean, we, we, we talked about this. I mean, it's October, guys. Yes, you know all this. It's where it's going to celebrate the Reformation. Okay. All right. So, we covered all of that. Right? And there's so many more things. I gave you 25 theses, right? 25. And we rewrote some of them, correct? All right. All of them are there. Okay. Now, so we are today are going to begin thesis number one. We did a little bit of church history on Wednesday. Yes? All right. And we got the timeline. What's, why did I give you the timeline? Why did I give you the timeline? I wanted you to see how it was there. Actually, we need to probably continue with the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Is probably what we need to actually do, correct? Yeah, we probably need to do that. Ah, I don't want to do that, but let's do that. Okay, let's go back to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. All right, if you don't have one, you can find it online. All right. Yeah, we have to do this. We got to go back to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. All right. London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we were still in uh, chapter 19, yes? Okay. All right, well, we'll have to do a quick review to get everyone caught up. All right, London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. All right, here we go. Um, we'll start, we'll, we'll go back with paragraph one. I won't be able to do all, all the teaching on them. I'm going to go through these quickly. If for some reason anyone has a question or doesn't understand it, let me know. But this is kind of, this is the confession for this church. We've been, we've walked, we've taught this many times. Does anybody have it or can find it or need it? Do we have some copies in the back? Can you grab them real quick? then everyone will be on the same page. All right. Well, we'll, we'll pause this live broadcast for a moment. Okay. Well, we gather all of our materials. I was ready to go right to thesis number one, but that's okay. Here we go. Awesome. It'll be chapter 19. Okay, just, just in case everyone needed it. All right. Just want to make sure. I'm going to be reading uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confe- Confession of Faith in Modern English. So it's a, it's a little different than what you have. Please ask for clarification. All right, here we go. Chapter 19, the law of God, paragraph one. God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, God, of good and evil. By these, God obligated him and all his descendants, this is very important, and all his descendants include whom? Us. So this is what the law of God demands. Two, everybody ready? You may want to make sure you have these down. I've said, I've been repeating them all week on, in podcasts. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. That is what the law demands. The law of God demands a personal, it's got to be you, total, total, and when it says total, what is total referring to? External and internal obedience, right? A lot of times people will focus on obedience to the law only as an external act, but you can obey the law externally and still be guilty of it Internally, So it's got to be total. It's got to be both. It's got to be exact. It can't be, well, I came close. I tried. I got 50% of it. No, it's got to be exact. And it has to be 
perpetual meaning all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all right? And, and your whole life. And then anyone looks at that immediately says what? I'm in trouble. I'm done, all right? Especially if you know the law of God, all right? God promised life if Adam did what? Fulfill it and threatened what? Death if he broke it and he gave Adam the power and the ability to keep it. Adam did have the power and the ability to keep it because what did Adam not possess? A sin nature. He had the power, he had the ability, and they did what? They sinned anyway and they failed. All right? Meaning that even people with the power to do it may still may not be able to do it, which raises all kinds of questions. Okay, but they failed, they're in trouble. But just remember, what does the law demand? I just want to make sure you have that like so ingrained in your brain. What kind of obedience? Personal, total, exact, perpetual. Right? Just make sure you have those written down, okay? Whenever you see a law in the Bible, right? Any law in the Bible. And how do you know when a text is law? Well, if it says do this, if it, if it gives you a command, that's a law passage, all right? And when you read that law, you can't come along and then modify it like Christians love to do. Well, I mean, as long as we're trying, as long, no, it demands perfect obedience. And so every law passage ultimately does what? What does it reveal? It shows our failure and our sin, and it should drive us to gospel, which says Christ did it. All right. So just remember, when it came to Christ and the law of God, what kind of obedience did Christ demonstrate? Personal, total, exact, and perpetual. All right. Therefore, in Christ, I can stand before God, and what kind of what what can be said of me that I have demonstrated personal? Total, exact, and perpetual obedience. And what's the next two words? In Christ. All right, so that's very important. All right, number two. The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. And again, please note, where was it written? In the heart. In the heart. And why, why is that significant? That demonstrates why human beings are moral beings, yes? Morality. Where, what is morality? Right? Remember, within culture... All cultures are going to have a morality. The question isn't the morality. The question is, where does the morality come from or the basis of the morality, right? And you only have a few options on the basis of morality. What are they? The majority determines morality. That doesn't, that's not always a good thing, right? Because the majority can determine that it's fine to sell human beings as, as slaves, right? So then, so the, moral, the, the majority is not always right. But then you can have, then morality either comes from the minority, but that's not always right, right? The minority could be messed up because you have the Organization for Man-Boy Love uh, Association, which calls for basically men to be able to have physical relations with children as young as six or seven. Nobody wants that minority determining morality, right? So the majority turning mor- uh, determines morality or the minority determines morality or what's the third option? The individual, determines morality, and that's great, uh, I guess, but if I'm determining morality, then, yeah, that, that's, that's hard to, op- that leads to chaos. So everyone, everyone in the world has a moral system, right? So I don't like when Christians say, well, atheists or agnostics can't be moral. No, everyone has a morality. It's just, what's the basis of the morality? Are you basing it off the majority, the minority, or the individual, Christianity says the basis of morality comes from a transcendent morality, which is from God, and it is written where? In our hearts. But the fact that everyone has a morality, we know why they do. Because there's a law written in here that they then try to live out or to push forward as law out there. Just because of the fall, our understanding of the law in our heart is all what? messed up and confused, and that's why laws can be all messed up and confused. But that's where morality is going to come from. That's where morality is going to come from, right? And so for the Christian, our focus is on the fact that that morality, God's morality does what to us? Condemns us, and we need the gospel. And I don't, and well, we can get into a whole discussion, but we, and you know how I feel about this, I don't think Christians should be trying to push our morality upon everyone else, because the Christianity is not a call to try to force everyone to that morality, it's a, it's a 
call to have everyone see their sin and come to Christ and then try to live according to God's law. But that's a whole different subject. We get into Christian nationalism and all kinds of those things. All right. But everyone got that. Where is it written? On the heart. Then it was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, and it was written in two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God, and the other six are duty to humanity. All right. Everybody got that? Number three, in addition to this law, usually called what kind of law? The moral law. God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws, okay, containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship by prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, suffering, and benefits. And what do we believe about the ceremonial law? It was fulfilled in Christ, right? So that's why we're not offering sacrifices or following all of the rules in Leviticus when it comes to those. In other ways, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. Since all these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Christ and the true Messiah and the only lawgiver, uh, the true Messiah and only lawgiver. He was empowered by the Father to do this. So the, the ceremonial laws have been done away with. And what other kind of law existed in the Bible? Civil or judicial law. And that was for whom? Israel, and Israel was to live under that civil law because they were living under what form of government? A, a theocratic, and then it kind of turned into kind of a theocratic monarchy. But we don't believe that those civil laws should be imposed now. They were for Israel, okay? And it's not our job to try to impose those. Now, if you want to try to impose those, you'd have to impose all of them, which means a whole lot of people are going to die. And I, I would only do that if we go back to a theocracy and some Christians want a theocracy, but theocracies work well until what? Your God's not in charge, and then guess what happens? What, what always happens when church and state merges throughout church history? People die. People die. It's all great when you get your religious laws invoked, but then when the other religion takes over, then they invoke their religious laws, and so it's just then everyone's killing each other over their religion, and which just always goes really, really bad. But unless God is dwelling in our midst in the tabernacle, um, we don't go back to a theocracy, all right? Uh, number four, to Israel, he also gave various judicial laws. See, I, I, I was already telling you what was coming, right? Which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. All right. Brings us to number five. Is this where we stopped? All right. This is where we stopped. Here we go. The moral law. Now, we know which law we're referring to, right? Forever's forever requires what? It's forever binding or requires obedience of everyone. And what kind of obedience does it require? Personal, total, exact, and perpetual. Look at you guys. Y'all got it, all right? Um, But those who are justified, both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. Now, what we need, this is where some people may get confused. It's the law is still an obligation for all of us, right? We're all, we all read the scriptures, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But just remember, are we ever going to fulfill it? Not in ourselves. So what does it make us constantly flee back to? Christ who completed and finished all of it. All right? We have to understand that. Because any Christian who says, no, we can keep it, well, then to keep it would require what kind of obedience? Personal, exact, entire, total, perpetual, all of the, the different words that we've used. Okay? So immediately we would realize we fall short how frequently? Every, every day. All right. So any questions there? And why, why do you think, what do you think uh, paragraph five is trying to deal with? What, what theological error is paragraph five trying to deal with? Oh, come on. You guys should know this. Y'all have a chance to look smart in front of a visitor. Come on. Starts with an A. Anta. 
Antinomian. Antinomianism. Yeah, right at the tip of your tongue. Okay, antinomianism acts like the law is what? Like completely gone. Right? You don't need, it's just obliterated. You don't even have to worry about it. No, the law is still there. The law is still, we're still called to obey it. The difference is, everyone, just think, the antinomian just basically says, look, the law, Christ did away with the law. You don't even have to worry about it. You don't need to, you don't have to obey it. You're no longer under it. This is saying that the law is still what? An obligation for whom? You can look at the paragraph. Everyone, and it goes on to even specify. Does it specify those who are justified? Yes. So we're still obligated to it. Yeah, he strengthens the obligation. And how does he strengthen the obligation? How does Christ strengthen the obligation to the law? Yeah, Christ strengthens it because he moves it from the external to the internal. Right? So, so whether you've ever, you could be guilty of murder without actually physically killing someone. You can be guilty of adultery without ever touching someone. So therefore, you can be, you can, uh, he strengthens it to demonstrate even much more our, our sinfulness. So the, so this is what drives me crazy. If I come along and say, hey guys, listen, here's the reality. You can't keep the law. So don't look to the law as proof of one's salvation, because your salvation is based off an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. Immediately you'll be accused of being an antinomian. No, an antinomian is not someone who says, hey, you can't look to this to prove your salvation. An antinomian is like, don't even worry about the law, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying the law doesn't matter. I'm saying you can't look to it to prove your salvation. And the reason you can't look to it to prove your salvation is for it to prove your salvation, it would require what? Personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. You can't look to the law to prove your salvation when the law demands all of that. You would, because every time you look to it, you would come to what conclusion? That you're not saved. That's, that's the problem. So then people are like, well, you're throwing out the law. I'm not throwing out the law. The law is still there. It's still what we're supposed to pursue. I just know that if every time I try to pursue it and look to it, what am I going to discover? My disobedience. So what do I do when I constantly see my disobedience? I either run to despair, despondency, depression. I'm on TikTok making deconstruction videos. Right? Or I run to Christ and realize my only hope is in the imputed righteousness because I've not been given an infused righteousness unless I believe in Roman Catholicism. But even in Roman Catholicism, who believes in infused righteousness versus an imputed righteousness, they even know that even with the infused righteousness, you still can't do it. That's why you have to go to purgatory. So even someone who believes in infused righteousness believes you're still not, not going to make it. So, so for those of us who believe in imputed righteousness, why do we ever point people to the law for some kind of an assurance? Because the law is, was the law ever designed to give assurance? What was it designed to do? <laughs> to show you your sin. So that, but that's not antinomianism. Antinomianism is saying, hey, don't even worry about the law. Just throw it out. All those passages that tell you to do something, just ignore. That's, that's, that's a million. That, oh, that, that drives me crazy when the antinomian charge comes. But it, it does. It does frequently. And, well, that's, that's why that paragraph is there. Does that make sense? All right, number six. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. That's where people get nervous. We're not under the law, but we're not under the law for what purpose? Okay, let's think. Okay, let's do this. Now we're going to get into a little bit of covenant theology. Remember, I have some issues with covenant theology, but at least we have a basic idea here. Okay, remember in covenant theology, sometimes they will say that there's at least two basic covenants, right? Which I think can become problematic, but all right. But just make sure we understand when we say covenant of works, where does the covenant of works first clearly demonstrate and manifest itself. Covenant of works. Where does it first manifest itself in your Bible? 
before that. Way before Noah. The first place it manifests itself is Adam and Eve. Right? Do this. Don't do this. And if you do this, you die. That's a covenant of works. Right? Okay? That's, that's a clear covenant of works. Okay? Does that make sense? Right? It, yeah, it starts early on. And what, ha- and what was man's uh, success rate under the covenant of works? Perfect failure. Perfect failure. Okay? Now, some will argue, especially certain forms of dispensationalism, that the covenant of works continued in the Old Testament, Right? Because you have the law. But the point is, whenever God tells people, do this and live, what did they always do? They failed. That's, wherever the law would say, hey, do this and live, they always failed. Israel did it continually. Yes? All right. So just make sure that that's completely given. So for us, we, we do not look to a covenant of works for what two things? Justification? Our condemnation. Why? Because our justification and condemnation for the Christian, our justification is based off what? Not our law keeping, but on Christ. And our condemnation no longer exists because there is no therefore no condemnation for those who are in. And that's Romans chapter what? Come on, y'all find it. It's in Romans. Yep, where is it? It's not 12.1. That's therefore on the chapter 8. Okay, verse what? A1. Very good. Okay. All right, everybody see it? Do you need to read it? What does it say? Everybody read it? There is a lot. Everybody read it? Now, who walk not after the flesh of the Spirit is the controversial part, but we won't get into that. Just make sure there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? All right, everybody got that? All right, that's what this, this is trying to say, all right? But look, the very next word in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. And then the very next word in the modern English is yet. What is it in the older versions? Yet? Yet? Now, you may want to circle the word yet. Because what does it say? It is very useful to them. All right, that, that's not antinomianism. Okay, so let me ask you this. Here's the million dollar question, all right? I, I wanted to get to thesis number one, but that's okay. We'll take the time to work through this, all right? We could, we could spend years studying the London Baptist Confession of Faith. All right, here we go. You ready? All right. Now, just so, make sure we understand this. When you do a law and gospel, first you have to have the proper distinction, right? You got to make sure law, gospel, and that the two never do what? Mingle. Because if they mingle, what always happens? Gospel gets destroyed. Okay, so we always have to have the proper distinction between law and gospel. Not only do we have to have the proper distinction between law and gospel, we have to understand the proper uses of law and gospel. There's a proper time to use the law, and there's an improper time to use the law. There's a proper time for the gospel. There's an inappropriate time for the gospel. All right? And sometimes when Christians deal with people, they use law when they shouldn't use law. They give gospel when they shouldn't give gospel. And sometimes it can be very convoluted. Why? Because they usually don't have a proper distinction between these two because it got obliterated in church history. Okay? Why? There's so many reasons why, okay? Um, we, I could go to all my theories, but we won't go into all my historical theories right now. Okay, so this is going to tell us that, hey, as a Christian, we're not under the law for what two things? Justification or condemnation. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, right? So that makes sense, right? We're not justified by the law. We're not justified by works. We're justified... And if you want to say we're justified by works, I will say yes, as long as you tell me I'm justified by whose works? Christ. Then okay, then we can, we can talk, right? That's why the Bible constantly says we're going to be judged according to our works. And I, and I can say yes, I will be judged according to my works, but in Christ Jesus, whose works are mine? His works are mine. Okay, so we understand that. So, now, when it comes to the Christian, 
what is the use of the law for your life, for my life? And what is, what is a correct use of the law? And what is an incorrect use of the law? I see some of you looking at your London Baptist Confession of Faith trying to find the answer, okay? But I just want you to tell me what, you th- what is a correct use of the law for the believer? All right, good. good. I'm gonna, you're reading the London Baptist Confession of Faith, right? That's really good. That's really good. Okay. All right. So let's, th- let's see how this works. All right. So it can be, u- it can be used. Let's, we'll go with that. It can be used as a guide. What do you mean as a guide? Right, it demonstrates the, can we, will, will this be acceptable language? It, it demonstrates the path of righteousness, demonstrates the way of righteousness, which can we agree that the path of righteousness, the way of righteousness, typically, not, it may go against what you desire you want, but it, one, it would be a way that would be more pleasing to God because God is holy and he calls us to be holy. Yes, even though we're never going to be holy in practice, but it gives us that guide, that direction. All right. What is an improper way of using the law for a believer? Well, this this is the debate within evangelicalism. Okay. Okay. Yeah, now this is where, I, if I use the law to say, hey, yes, you should be doing this, this, you should be following this, right? That would be an acceptable. But in the evangelical world, it's not used that way. It's used that way, but there's always an additional thing added to it. So I come to Sarah, give her the law, whatever law it may be, right? Submit yourself to your husband, whatever laws may be, right? Okay, do this, love your neighbor, dun, 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 right? So I give her all the law. Right? Now, that's, that's a proper use of it because the law is there and it's still binding and so she should follow that. Now, what should happen when she sees her failure in it? Flee to Christ, right? Because Christ is wrong. Is she ever going to do this perfectly? Not even close, right? Because it would require what kind of obedience? Personal, total, exact, perpetual. Okay, so she's not going to do that. But this is where the evangelical world comes in and we get, and, and the reason they do this is because we get nervous, Right? Okay, well, man, I got to make sure Sarah's going to obey all of these rules and follow this because we don't want a Christianity that looks worldly and ungodly and weak. So I got to make sure she's going to do this. So I come along with the law and say, do this. And then I add this great comment that's added in sermons all across America. If you don't do this, or you demonstrate a disobedience to this, or if this begins to characterize your life and a disobedience to this, then your Probably not saved. Now I'm using the law as the basis to either prove or disprove her salvation. That becomes the problem. Because now, what did I just make the basis of salvation? The works. Now, I know they would say, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you're saved, you will work. I'm not saying the works save you. But the minute you tell me the absence of the work, I'm not saved, you just told me what's required. The works. And the works has already been met. In Christ. So if she's put her faith in Christ, you can't, I can't come to her and say, hey, Sarah, you can't be saved. You're not doing these things. She would say, they've already been done for me, by Christ. And the minute I say that, someone's going to say, that's antinomian, that's easy believism. You can't do that. No, it's trying to maintain a proper distinction between. And so then they'll run to either 1 John or James and start quoting scriptures to try to prove something. And then we've, we've talked a long time about 1 John, even this week on the podcast. I did hours talking about, you know, 1 John is a polemic against Gnosticism. Before, the way it's been handled in modern Christianity is that it's a test to prove whether you're saved or you're not saved, which then becomes, well, you basically walk right, right back into Roman Catholicism and you basically are destroying the gospel. So that, 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 that's the issue. So I want to make sure you realize everyone wants to throw out the word antinomian. You're going to have a hard time trying to find an antinomian. Right? Those, those, they may be there, but typically they're, they're, they're people who are being called something that, they're, that doesn't actually meet their theology, right? Because typically what, what's been a, a major force of American Christianity is pietism, right? Christianity has been so much 
defined by kind of a, a, a pietism which says, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. If you're a Christian, you don't listen to rock and roll. If you're a Christian, you don't dance. If you're a Christian, you don't do this. You don't go here. You don't do there. You don't date this person. You don't do all these do's and don'ts and don'ts and don'ts. And you wear this and you don't wear this and you act like this. There's been a pietism that's so much defined American Christianity, right? Well, to maintain that pietism, you got to constantly give people what? The law. The more law. You've got to give them more law, more law, more law, more law, more law. But the one thing that we should have realized by now, all the laws in the world don't do what? They don't change the heart. They don't change the heart. And all the threatenings in the world. Hey, you're not going to be, you're not saved, you're not saved. It doesn't lead all of a sudden someone becoming magically godly. So what typically happens, it leads to discouragement, disillusionment, and a widespread thing of deconstruction that became a trend on, on TikTok and other social media platforms where people saying, I tried Christianity. I tried it. But I kept falling. I kept falling. I kept falling. And what, what do we always tell people when they talk about their struggles with sin? What do we give them? We should, but we don't. We give them more law. What do we tell them? You need to read your Bible more. Are you going to church more? Are you part of a small group? Are you doing this? Do you have accountability? Do you do this? Do you have an app on your phone checking what you're doing? Do you do this? 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 And typically by the time you're done with that great counseling session, you realize, I'm never going to be able to do this. Or you have to start pretending that you are when you clearly are not. That, that, see, that mixture of law and gospel has profound implications in one's practical life. This has major problems. So what they say is that the, the uh, law is useful to them and to others as, here we go, as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their nature, hearts, and lives. Now, it does do all of that, but what does it do primarily? Exposes your sin. It exposes your sin primarily over and over and over and over and over again. It does give you how to live. It does direct you. It does inform you. But I'm telling you over and over and over, you're going to fall short. I, remember, I do this every time. I can give you three scriptures. I can give you three simple scriptures. Right? You know what the three are, right? First one, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Anyone who's even halfway honest with themselves, no, they never love God that way. What do we love constantly that way? Ourselves. Right? We love ourselves. Right? That's the God we ultimately love. That's the God we ultimately worship. It's self, 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 self. All right, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's hard to love anybody as much as I love myself, right? As much as you love yourself, you don't have any love left for anybody else, right? And a lot of times we only love others for what benefit? Self, okay, right? So even our love is called into God. Sometimes I only love God for what he's going to give me, right? Sometimes you only love others for what they're going to give you, and then when you don't feel like you're getting what you want, then you stop loving them, right? Isn't that the way it kind of works? I mean, come on, this is, I mean, nobody wants to be honest, but that's, that's built into us. And then one more scripture, be holy as God is holy. If, if you meet a Christian who claims that they're as holy as God is holy, you need to probably run from them because they're probably dangerous to themselves and others or because that's delusional. Those three scriptures should make you realize, oh man, now, does, does that, do, do we throw out those laws? No. We, we pursue it, but we always realize we fall short of it. So law always has this revealing aspect to it, this revealing aspect to it. So that, and, and what should that drive us back to? Back to the gospel, back to the gospel, back to the gospel, back to the gospel, right? Now, Please note. So it it's also exposes the sinful corruptions of their nature, natures, hearts, and lives. Please note, it reveals it reveals the corruption in three areas. The law reveals the corruption in three areas. What are the three areas? 
your nature. And everybody got that? That means that's, that's what's inside of us. That is what's inside of us. And this is the part that we have to never forget. Does the nature go away in regeneration and justification? No, it exists. So much of Christianity teaches us almost like the nature goes away. It doesn't. Now, there are theologies who believe in the eradication of the old man, but most of the people who teach those doctrines say they never have experienced it, okay, which is kind of funny. But no, the old nature doesn't go away. Okay, do what? Or they make excuses, right, yeah. Right, and because it doesn't go away. I wish it went away. If the old nature went away, what could we expect within Christianity? Sinless perfection. 2,000 years of church history. I mean, and if Paul, the letter to 1 Corinthians could have been a whole lot shorter if this was true, right? Paul could have wrote the Corinthians and like, hey guys, you don't longer have a sinful nature. Just stop being sinful. Just be good. Yeah, or, hey, guys, be saved. But he spent chapter after chapter after chapter dealing with all of their problems, right? And what did he tell them in 1 Corinthians 3? You're carnal. You're fleshly. But he referred to them as babes in Christ. So he didn't question their salvation. Why would he question their salvation? Because their salvation is determined by what? Christ. It's determined by Christ. It's determined by Christ. So he was struggling with them. because, well, And guess what? The Bible's filled with... Every church had major issues. I wonder why. Because sinners go there. Because guess what's there? Our nature. Where else does it expose the corruption? Our hearts. Our hearts. So it's in our nature. It's in our heart. Now, why why do they want to stress the heart? Why do you think they... they, they, Because you can say, well, if they got the nature, why do they need to mention the heart? Well, the heart seems to be the seat of emotion desire, feelings, right? So it's telling us that even our motives, our desires are corrupted. That's why we can sometimes do the right thing for the wrong motive. That's sometimes we, our desires are incorrupt. What do we desire? See, do I have it here? Probably not the right time to pull it out. Let me see, do I have it here? Where do I have it? Where do I have it? Hang on. Yeah, I have it here. Okay, now for, for the visitors, just don't panic. Okay, all right. I have the Satanic Bible right here. Okay, by Anton LaVey. I know, Emma's like, oh my goodness, pastor, could you, could you wait and not pull out? We only pull out the Satanic Bible on special meetings, okay? But the Satanic Bible, right? Satanic Bible. And what I always love about the Satanic Bible is the nine Satanic statements that begin the Satanic Bible. Now remember, the Satanic Bible is not a book about devil worship. Satanic Bible is a book about what? Worship of self. Because Satanism is atheistic. It's agnostic. Satanism is not about worshiping Satan. Satan just represents something. He's just a symbol of something. Satanism is more... I, I like. Remember the reason Anton LaVey started Satanism was for what reason? He saw the hypocrisy of Christians who on Saturday are living in sin, but Sunday are at the altar going, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then next Saturday, back to sinning. He's like, why worship a religion that goes against what you want and instead of having a religion that's just honest about, about the way you live and what you want, right? So, because our very heart and nature craves it. So, the satanic statements are, number one, Satan represents, please see, he's just a symbol, of indulgence instead of abstinence. Satan is like, don't, why would you try to abstain? Indulge, that's what you want. That's honest. That's truthful. Does your heart want indulgence or abstinence? Indulgence. And even if you say, well, even if you're like, well, not the really bad stuff, the point is you still want to indulge in what you want, what you desire. And where does that flow from? Corrupt nature and a corrupt heart, which where your emotions and desires flow. Number two, Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. In other words, hey, focus on what you can touch, what you can taste, what you can smell, what you can feel, not about something out there that you don't even know if it's there. Right? Focus on... on Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow 
we die. And we don't know what's after that. that. That's his focus. Number three, Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Acknowledge the truth. Acknowledge the truth of yourself. I wish Christians could do a better job of acknowledging the truth of ourselves. The truth of ourselves, our nature is corrupt and our heart is corrupt. But we want to pretend like somehow that's not the case. But 2,000 years of church history, yeah, or just how long you've been alive, you probably know, right? Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. We can all relate. Oh, come on. We can all relate to that. There's even a part of me that wants to say, amen, okay? About time someone preaches a message I can relate to. Yes? That's very much a part of our, my life, your life, is it not? I, I will, I'll give kindness to a, who I think deserve it. Christ says, love even your enemy. What kind of nonsense? Love my enemy? Because my heart doesn't want to love my enemy. My heart wants to love those who I think deserve it. And how do I know they deserve it? Because they show kindness to me. I get get oatmeal cookies. If I get oatmeal cookies, then Emma's a great person. I don't. don't Who cares? I don't care. Emma's in a car wreck. I'm sorry. She hasn't given me oatmeal cookies in a month. Tell her to get better. Give me some oatmeal cookies. And then I'll feel bad for the car wreck. Right? And you're like, that's horrifying. That's the truth. That's what's inside of us. Even though we know better too. Say it. Well, some of us do. But that's the reality. Right? Yes? Okay? Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Oh, man, I like that one. Right? Yes? Who wants, who wants to turn the other cheek? And we know how Christians have handled that. That's all the Sermon on the Mount. And just make sure you know, Sermon on the Mount is law, 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 law. It's all law. By the time you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you should be like, I'm done. And so what Christians have tried, we try to somehow present it as gospel some weird way, try to act like that somehow we can do it, and then we minimize everything Jesus says. Well, he says love your enemy. Well, he doesn't mean that you should be like a doormat and people should take it. And when he says uh, turn the other cheek, he doesn't mean, and we always make all the things he doesn't mean because we got to make it something that we can actually do instead of realizing that it's a law which shows us our inability to do it at all. That's why what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That should be a clue, <laughs> right? That should be a clue. Uh, Jesus, I got a problem here. Well, about time you figure it out, right? You do have a major problem, right? You're like a Satanist, right? You, you want vengeance. Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of the concern for the psychic vampire. Psychic vampires are those who just take from your life. They just drain on you. You don't owe anything to them. Who cares about them? Don't give them anything, right? We, we once again understand that. Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than that that walk on all fours, who because of our divine spiritual and intellectual development has become the most vicious animal of all. That, hey, we're, we're far worse than the animals. But there's a lot of truth to that. yes. Satan represents all the so-called sins as they all lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. See, don't abstain. Go for all these things. And then last, Satan represents, Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had because he's kept it in business all these years. All right, that's Anton LaVey. And you say, well, that's horrifying. I know it is horrifying. But that's the point. It very much represents what? What's inside all of us. So by nature, we're all what? Satanist. By nature. That's just inside of us. Because the law reveals that we are corrupt in our nature, our heart, and then there's one other? Lives. The corruption shows up in our lives. No matter how good you think you are, The corruption is there. And how do you know the corruption is there? How do you see the corruption in your life? Comparing your life to the law of God. Comparing your life to the law of God. Comparing your life to the law of God. 
the law of God constantly. So if you think about the way this works, even as a saved person, right? So the, the, if you think of it, the law here drives you to Christ for salvation. After salvation, you see the law, and it should drive you right back to what? To Christ for forgiveness and for the gospel. It, it, the law constantly sends you back to Christ. And we almost like, well, God saved me, now I can keep the law. I wish we could, but no. Be, wh- wh- what's our problem with keeping the law? Our corrupt nature, our corrupt heart. It's inside of us, and that doesn't go away, and we're out of, oh, almost out of time. Let's see if we can finish this. All right? As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin. So in other words, the more we compare our lives in the light of God's law, what should happen? We should be humiliated because of it, convicted by it, and have a hatred for it. Along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Please note what you should see. The more you look at the law as a Christian, you should be convicted, you should be humiliated, you should have a hatred for sin, but what should you really see? Your need for Christ and the perfection of whose obedience? His. That make perfect sense? Yes? The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them that even their sins deserve, uh, even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in their life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect when they keep it. Even though their blessings are not owed by them by the law as a covenant of works, people do good and refrain from evil because of the law, encourages good and discourages evil that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. All right, we'll have to stop there. Any questions quickly? I can hear people now are coming in. Yeah, I can hear people out there, people back there. Okay, now all the people show up. Okay, all right, we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, help us just continue to grow in our understanding of the proper distinction between law and gospel. Lord, forgive us for the corruption in our nature, our hearts, our lives, and help us understand our only hope is in your son, his perfect obedience, and his righteousness. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,